I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Aaron Taylor interviews a criminal defense lawyer who discusses the business side of running a small law firm. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law, and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit community. So we're joined today by Jessica Burke, a criminal defense attorney who graduated from Washington and Lee School of Law in 2009. Today she runs a small law firm in Burlington, Vermont, but it took her a few years to go into private practice. So Jessica, give us a sense of your post-graduation experiences. I graduated law school in 2009, and after graduation, I was a little bit unsure of what I wanted to do. I had initially been offered a position at a construction litigation firm after being a summer associate, but I was quite sure that that wasn't the direction I wanted to go. But I wasn't completely sure what direction I did want to go. So I worked for a small criminal defense firm in Virginia Beach. Uh, Anderson and Associates, where I tried some speeding tickets and uh, just basically broke my way into the to the courtroom practice and decided that I wanted to pursue public defense so I could get into some meteor cases and and really try my hand at everyday trial practice. So I was a public defender for about a year in Chesapeake, Virginia, and tried a myriad of cases, uh, anything from disorderly conduct to first-degree murder. From there, uh, I I realized that while criminal defense was exactly where I wanted to be, I wanted to be closer to my family. I moved back uh, home and found myself in Burlington, where I started my own criminal defense private practice, and that was in 2011. So what was starting your own practice like? What was that process like? The process was unique. I had other jobs during that time to get it off the ground. It required me to learn a lot about internet advertising, internet marketing, and how to practice law in Vermont. 
So you talk about, I guess, the the professional aspects of it, learning how to practice law in Vermont, but you also talk about the business side of it. Give us some more insight into the business side of having your own practice. Yeah, I think that was the thing that you don't learn about in law school, particularly law schools that have a large percentage of their population going into big law. You really don't have any classes or any focus on how to run a small business, which is critical to having a successful solo or small practice. Criminal defense is not generally practiced on its own as a primary practice area of a small firm. And so I think in a lot of ways, figuring out how to make that work in a small state like Vermont was sort of uncharted territory, and it took a lot of trial and error to to nail down the business side of it. How did your firm grow from just you to now two attorneys and an intern? We started advertising online. That was the first first step. We had a very homemade website to begin with. And from there, we were able to build a client base that essentially found us on the internet. And we we're in a small office space. And just by word of mouth and referrals and continuing to build a positive reputation with the local defense bar, we were able to to grow into a much larger space and support a second attorney. And we have an intern and we're hoping to hire another attorney in the next few months. What portion of your clients come in via word of mouth versus advertising versus other forms? I would say probably even at this point, four years in, about 80% of our clients come in through advertising. Now, what is the business relationship between you and the other two attorneys? How do you all divide work? How do you all interact in that setting? We have uh, some contracts with the state of Vermont that provide for conflict criminal defense. So when the public defender's office can't represent co-defendants, for example, they'll ask private attorneys to represent one of their other co-defendants or whoever they have a conflict with. So right now we divide it pretty strictly down the middle between David and myself, the other attorney here, that he takes those cases that come through the conflict contract, as it's called, and I handle the majority of the private cases that come through the door, although we do have some crossover. And what is the breakdown of your cases in terms of case type? We have a wide array of case type, anything from disorderly conduct or DUI right up through aggravated child sex assault and serious felonies. The majority of our private clients are misdemeanor clients, although we have some felonies. And the majority of our our conflict public defense cases are felony level offenses. Do you all handle any civil cases at all? Very, very minimally. We do accept them if they come in through a pre-existing client, but generally we refer those out. So do most of your clients come from the Burlington area or do they come from outside specifically because you have, you know, you're barred in different states? We get a lot of clients from a variety of areas. We're actually looking to open a second office in Hanover, New Hampshire. We do practice in New Hampshire and throughout Vermont. We made the decision early on to really focus in on criminal defense. A lot of our private practice is in the realm of DUI defense. And we wanted to broaden our practice geographically rather than broaden our practice areas. 
it was a conscious decision we made just based on what we enjoyed practicing and what we felt we could really do well and do well by our clients on. Through that, we, we really have focused to create a wider net of places doing criminal defense rather than bringing in civil or family law or another type of law. So how do you determine your fees? Our fees are generally based on either an hourly rate where someone comes in and gives you a retainer, a standard practice in law, or in some cases where we have a fairly good idea of how much work, travel, and time a case is going to take. We'll do what's called a flat rate fee to put the client more at ease that they know that they're not going to have a complicated case and feel taken for a ride. They know what they're going to pay upfront from the beginning. And if we deviate from that and we end up having to spend 15 hours on a motion, which has happened, that cost isn't passed on to them. That's really how it should be, I think. I really enjoy what I do. And if I see an issue that I really want to get into, you know, I don't know that my client who's facing a misdemeanor level charge should really be incurring a $10,000 bill for me to explore an issue intellectually that may help them out or, or ultimately may not. So the hourly fee, of course, has been the staple of the legal profession, but it's been coming under fire for many of the reasons that you assert. So I guess what type of split is there for you between the hourly fee arrangement and the flat fee arrangement? We try to approach it with each client individually, whatever they're more comfortable with. Because certainly there are circumstances where someone says, hey, I have a speeding ticket and I don't want to pay an hourly fee. I don't want to pay you for your travel. I think that you'll be in court only 10 minutes. And so we'll be willing to say, okay, that's, that's going to be a flat rate fee. Or we know about how much work most DUIs take. But there are people that just really feel strongly that the way that law is practiced is on an hourly basis and they would like to know what we're doing to the 10th of an hour for their fees. And we're very flexible and accommodating to either, either style that really depends on the client. And we spend a lot of time with each client up to an hour and a half in an initial free consult, really identifying what they need. And by the time that they leave, most of them very sure that they want to hire us and are comfortable with, with our fees. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, Visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, 
robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. Going back to the advertising for a moment, did you all consult with, I guess, advertising professionals or, or did you come up with your campaigns on your own? We did a lot of reading and a lot of research. That's a bit of a, a vulture infested area. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of people advertising their availability to come in and, and help us as this middleman between us and Google. But we actually reached out to, to Google directly. And they were so receptive. And we've really found a great relationship in working with their headquarters on their AdWords and how we can also get our search up organically. And by working with them directly, we've been able to do it all ourselves. So what have you found to be the most important relationships to cultivate within the courthouse? There are very many relationships to cultivate. And generally, having a friendly face and being in an upbeat mood sets you apart from a lot of the other attorneys, quite frankly. <laughs> yes, I could imagine. <laughs> um, I really enjoy what I do, and I think that comes across. And the clerks are great people who are really trying for you and your clients, and they are stuck in the middle of sometimes uh, difficult situations, meeting the judge's needs, the attorney's needs, and the client needs. So the clerks are your best friend. They are just so willing to help you out if you're willing to be accommodating to their needs and make sure that filing fees are paid on time, motions are filed properly. The judges all have their own personalities. Being respectful of their time is really helpful, I think, in making relationships go smoothly because the court is short on time and they have a lot of cases. Obviously, anyone else involves the prosecutors. It's important that they understand that you're going to bring issues to them that should be raised and you feel confident and comfortable raising them while you may really go toe-to-toe in the courtroom outside. We're all people, we're all professionals, and we can have a positive relationship and have a drink at the end of the day. That's an important point because we try to teach law students that civility is very much an integral part to their obligations as lawyers. And so it's great to hear that you agree with that and it benefits your work. I teach legal ethics here in St. Louis, and one of the naughtiest questions that we deal with during the semester is how does a lawyer defend someone who is factually guilty? And so how do you resolve that dilemma in your work? In my work, and I don't mean this to sound crass, whether or not someone's guilty or innocent is frankly not my place. My place is to ensure that they have a defense with integrity and a defense that is fair to everyone who might be a defendant. For me to pass judgment on whether or not someone did or did not do the thing that they are accused of doing is a question for the jury or in a bench trial situation, a question for the judge. If we put that determination in the attorney's hands, we have a very slippery slope. Moving what is to be a jury or a judge question into a realm of advocates. That is simply not how our system is built to work. It would ruin the integrity of the system for everyone involved if we started providing a different quality or caliber of defense for those that we as advocates felt personally like they were guilty or not guilty. So sometimes guilty people recognize their guilt 
and decide that taking a plea would be a better option than going to trial. So how does the plea process work? The plea process is different in every state. Here in Vermont, we have an arraignment, and at the arraignment, you get the initial offer. Every state has an arraignment, but you might not get an offer to settle at that arraignment. Here in Vermont, that's where our clients get their initial offer from the state of how to plea out or settle their case. And that's sort of the jumping off point for those negotiations. And that's where we start building our case. So if a client is perceived to have acted really recklessly or negligently in their decision-making process by getting into, say, a fight at a bar or getting behind the wheel under the influence, those bad decisions in and of themselves certainly create a pejorative picture of this individual, while that may only be representative of one fraction of their life. Perhaps he or she had a bad breakup or lost their job, lost his or her job. We really try to build who the individual is as an entire person to give the prosecutors a better idea of why this person's resolution should be unique to him or her, and also to meet the goals of sentencing. So whether or not they should receive a rehabilitative sentence or a punitive sentence, or we're really trying to get a message out to the community about this behavior being unacceptable. All of those factors come into play, and we work with our clients to build an idea of how they want to project themselves, and that goes into getting reference letters from jobs, family, friends, etc. So how frequently do you go to trial, and under what circumstances will you opt for a trial as opposed to taking a plea? Ultimately, the decision of whether or not to go to trial is in the province of the client. I will never tell a client whether or not we're going to trial. A plea is a very personal decision, and it's absolutely unique to the individual and their case. My job is to put before them the pieces they need to make that decision in an informed and voluntary way. Many times, the cases are truly litigated prior to trial in suppression hearings, and that is where the plea really starts to come together. For instance, in a DUI, if you had an invalid stop or constitutionally invalid stop, a cop says, I don't like redheaded women, and I saw her drive by and she was a redheaded woman, so I stopped her. I would obviously file a motion to suppress and dismiss before the court and say, this isn't a constitutionally valid reason to stop someone that weren't committing a motor vehicle violation, and there's no reasonable suspicion that redheaded women commit more crimes. So let's dispense with this and move on. And when the judge says, yes, that's an invalid reason, the suppression would work to suppress all evidence stemming from the stop, which in the case of a DUI would be everything. And then the case would be dismissed. So in that regard, many of our cases are tried during the suppression hearing because it determines what evidence will be coming in or won't be coming in at a trial. If all of the evidence is coming in, it may be overwhelming evidence of guilt. And in that case, we'd really be looking towards a plea. So you have discussed the importance of pretrial practice, which is something that I don't think we focus enough on in our general discourse of the practice of law. How did you get experience in that? Were there any law school experiences that you had that helped you in this realm? Judy Clark 
She did a criminal law practicum my third year of law school, and she's very well known as a federal public defender. And she brought in some real cases, and much of our semester was spent on pretrial practice, and very little of our semester truly was spent on actual trial practice. And I think it was very representative of how criminal practice truly is. You can't control a jury, and you don't ultimately know what they're going to think. But what you can, if not control, at least have a better idea about the outcome of is what evidence is going to come in and what evidence isn't going to come in and control that by solid research, appropriate legal writing, and a very good personal presence to convey that to a judge in a, in a succinct manner. So Jessica, you clearly love your job a lot. Are there any negative aspects of it? I think that one of the struggles is educating people who aren't criminal defendants about how quickly a regular person becomes a criminal defendant, that they are regular people just like you and me, and were circumstances different, perhaps I could have ended up in that chair or or you could have ended up in that chair based on decisions we might have made when we were younger or a lapse in judgment. And I think that that's a difficulty that we experience is just educating the public that you don't cross this realm into being a criminal defendant through nefarious ideas or, or actions. Sometimes it's, a, it's addiction. Sometimes it's just a lapse in judgment. And if we could all have a better understanding of criminal defendants are people too, I think that that would go a long way. I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.